everyone and welcome to Unspooled After Dark. That's right, Amy. This is an After Dark episode of Unspooled because after our conversation with Karina about the erotic 90s and talking about these films, you and I have been having these conversations off and on throughout the podcast for a long time about sex scenes in films and what makes them interesting. We talked about it when we looked at Brokeback Mountain. We talked about it in Fatal Attraction. And I was recently on Savage Love, which is Dan Savage's podcast. And you know Dan Savage as a sex advice columnist and a podcaster and author. He's great. Uh, he's articulate. He's funny. He's and personally one of my favorite writers. That man puts a sentence together like nobody's business. He really is just a true wordsmith, but also can talk about things that I think people can get tongue-tied with, right? You know, he can go right into it. And... I thought it might be really interesting to have a conversation with him because when I was on his show, and you should listen to the episode that I'm on, you, Amy, but everybody listening, maybe because it's a great show. We were talking about sex and film and Dan said something to me. He said, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable watching sex and film. And I thought that was really interesting because you would think the guy who, you know, obviously has this brand and, and, and writes this amazingly uh, forward thinking and openly embracing every kind of culture, sexual culture out there would be loving sex and film. And he said, I feel uncomfortable with it. And I thought that would be really interesting to talk to him about what he finds to be a little bit off-putting about it. So I thought we could sit down with him today and have this conversation about the state of sex in cinema. Oh, we have to do this, man, because as we're welcoming him on today, I'm hearing about people are protesting that Sidney Sweeney is going to be in an R-rated rom-com with Glenn Powell. And people are like, why has it got to be R? That means it's going to be a little uncomfortable and too sexy, sexy. And I'm like, man, I feel like we need this. I feel like we need it. Well, it's so funny because that article or that conversation point has also been put right next to Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas in their film and going like, well, they don't have chemistry, but uh, but Glenn Powell and she has it. You know, they have chemistry. And it's like, what makes chemistry? What makes, what do we want to see? Because I, I think sometimes... It's not only about two attractive people simulating sex, but I think there's something else there that that makes it fun, that makes it interesting, that makes it exciting. I think back to like the end of Superbad and when they're about to have sex, like the awkwardness, the funniness, the the kind of all the elements of sex. And it, it can't be too cool. And not to bring it back to comedy, but my friend was working on a sketch comedy show with a very famous rapper probably can figure it out but the rapper refused to do anything that made him look stupid and it was really hard because like well you're doing a sketch comedy show like part of being a sketch comedy is that you you look stupid and i think that maybe maybe that's something to talk about here like the idea of like what do you have to expose of yourself is sex sometimes on film too cool too quick too aggressive i don't know i i think we have to bring in our guest and have this conversation with him so without any further ado please welcome dan savage dan i'm so excited to have you on the show like i mentioned when i was on your podcast the savage love podcast we talked a little bit about sex and film and i wanted to continue that conversation here and, and kind of pick your brain about 
bad sex scenes, good sex scenes, what's working, what's not working, the whole thing. So welcome. Thank you for having me. You apparently have run out of people to talk to. It's the only reason I can figure out why I'm here, but I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. I had such a great time on your show, and we talked about this, I think, at the end of the segment that I did about like sex scenes in movies. And obviously, your podcast, you talk a lot about sex, but it's a weird thing, sex scenes in movies, or at least in my opinion, because sometimes I feel this repulsion to some of them. And then sometimes it feels too chaste. It's like, it's a hard thing to kind of hit. Like what is, or what makes a good sex scene? And I think you were even saying that you feel like sometimes you're even a little put off by sex scenes in films, right? No, I, I am. My husband and some friends have noticed, and, and they think it's really ironic because I write about sex and talk about sex all the time, that whenever people start kissing on, you know, we're watching television or a sex yeah. scene comes up or at the movies, I always like flinch and then just kind of look away yeah. until it ends. And then I glance back a little bit. There's just some part of me that's not comfortable with watching other people have sex or pretend to have sex. There's some lie at the heart of a sex scene where you just can't know that they, they're not even supposed to want to be there. You can't know that they are both enjoying this, but it's also would be a violation of kind of the norm, the professional norm of filming a scene like this to be too into it, that they are faking it. That's the job, unless it's pornography. Pornography seems honest. A sex scene in a movie seems like a lie. I guess that's why I have to avert my eyes. <laughs> oh, wow. There's a lot in there to unpack. And I'm very excited to start unpacking that. One of the things that you said that first caught my eye is the way you describe watching it. It sounds almost like the way I feel watching a horror movie. Like, I know this isn't real, but I'm feeling this like uh, response in my body, almost like I can't control it and I don't want to watch it straight. But then I'm also hearing something that would make it the opposite of it, which is like, when I watch a horror film, my brain goes to like a really lizard place where I'm like, this is real. This woman's actually dying. But you are very aware of the job that these actors are doing. Yeah, but we are all of us a massive contradictions because I can't watch horror movies because I go to that same lizard brain place. <laughs> you know, Quentin Tarantino movies are too violent for me. My, you know, whenever a new one comes out, my husband sees it first and then I go watch with him and he's always like, close your eyes. Right before I need to close my eyes. <laughs> that, that's one of the upsides of being together, being with somebody for 30 years, is that kind of mind-meld intimacy where yes. he knows exactly when to tell me to, to look away from a horror movie. I do the same thing with my wife in like things that are extremely violent or that she doesn't want to see. And you are you know, you're serving as their eyes, but my wife who doesn't want to see any of that stuff will constantly be asking, can I open them now? Can I open them now? It's like, no, I'll tell you what, like, I'm not whole, like, I'm not going to just wait 30 minutes and then say, oh, I totally forgot to tell you to open your eyes again. But it is this battle of like looking through the, your fingers a little bit. I think that there is this element. And sometimes like, I just watched this movie for how did this get made called Milk Money. And the premise of that movie is Ed Harris is a widowed man. His kids decide to go into the city and they meet up with a sex worker because they want to see uh, her naked. Uh, and then they decide, oh, well, this would be a great wife for our dad. They bring her home and then they, then they fall in love. And I was more uncomfortable in that sex scene because at one point, Melanie Griffith, who plays the, the sex worker says, uh, let's go to bed or like, let's have sex. And, and he goes, I don't want to have sex. I want to make love. 
and I, and I needed to get up off the couch and walk around my uh, walk around the table. I was like, ah, I don't want to be there, even if that's a real moment. I don't want to be there for that. And by the way, that was a kids movie. And then on the other side of it, I feel like to your point, like when it's in the, like you know a porn, like you're right. We know what we're there for, and everything else just feels. I don't know. There's sometimes a creep factor of it, and I can't quite figure out. I'm much more into just cut to post, lead me right into it, fade out, and then put the lights back up. That like I'm, I don't need to see it. Like, what am I getting from a movie that I like? Oh, like I really need to see how he's thrusting uh, to understand how this character is going to arc. Well, wait, let me let me single out one word you said: creep. You feel creep, creeped out. Yeah. Who is the creep in that moment? Do you feel like you're the creep for watching it, or the director's the creep for shooting it? Or you're thinking of all the creepy people standing around on the set. It gives me like the tingles. And I don't know if I go and think about like the people on the set uh, as much as I'm like, it maybe feels too intimate to me or it feels like, oh, I don't want to see this. I don't need to see this. And then I think to Dan's point, like I understand that people may or may not want to be there or they're doing this. It, it just feels like, look, you can run around like John Wick. Everyone talks about like, oh yeah, it was amazing. Took a bowling ball and smashing that guy's leg. And then, you know, threw him out of a window and you're like, that those fight scenes look so real. But like in a sex scene, there is just something about it that feel, I mean, even though we want the, I guess what I'm saying is we watch things so manufactured, but that one feels the weirdest to me. So I get the, I either get the creeped out sense of like, I shouldn't be watching this or I don't feel comfortable around it. Now, sometimes it works fine, but I'm very rarely titillated by like a uh, a regular movie sex scene. <laughs> what we find titillating is so subjective. Right. And part of going to the movies and having these vicarious experiences and the catharsis of films is like inhabiting the characters. And there's this moment when the character drags you into a sex scene. And I don't want to sound like one of these censorious Gen Z kids on Twitter saying sex scenes are a consent violation. But there's that moment when you're with the character and then the character begins to have sex and you're kind of implicated by that. It's it's really hard to define <laughs> yeah. what's going on here. It's some weird valley next to the uncanny valley when the sex scene starts where you just feel like oddly thrown out of it. And with porn, it's all in and you know the people are actually aroused uh, but, you know, also there's some part of us that knows that some people in porn are just like going through the motions, getting the paycheck. Gay for pay is a thing. There's not everybody who's making porn is enjoying the porn that they're making. Certainly tons of women have appeared in porn that they didn't enjoy making. But there's something honest at the heart of porn. And there's something honest in a performance until the performance of arousal and desire. Because we all know that can't be faked. Right. And that's why I think that sometimes maybe a scene that works better. Like I love the TV show, the Americans, right? So we know that those two actors, uh, Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell are together. And so there's something about like the intimacy, the chemistry. And I think we're always chasing like chemistry. And, and right now I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it too much, but that Anna de Armas movie uh, that just came out on Apple TV ghosted. There's a lot of talk about the lack of chemistry, like, Oh, there's a lack of chemistry here. And I think that maybe that helps things too. Like when you really feel like, oh, I, I like these people together. I want to watch them. But we really have gone in the history of at least my film going history, gone from like the 80s and stuff where it was just like boobs. We're going to see boobs. Like boobs are going to come out. And it was very unsexualized boobs. And then you go into like the 90s 
which we just had uh, Karina Longworth here on the show talking about like this erotic cinema, like this idea of like, then it was like adult, adult movies. We're talking about sex and we're going to be like, she's got an ice pick and, and Madonna ties people up and, and there's wax, you know, and, and like, you know, like, we're, we're seeing a whole nother world. And then we kind of come now into this generation. And I feel like it's pretty much gone for the most part. Like you, like you don't see that much sex in film right now or you see it on television. Check out Euphoria. Young Royals was a really weird show to watch as an adult human because it's actual 15-year-olds playing 15-year-olds or people who look like 15-year-olds as opposed to 30-year-olds playing 15-year-olds a la Glee and Euphoria and everything else. And, you know, there are these two, you know, boys with stick arms who look like 15-year-old boys having sex for the first time. And the chemistry is there. It's just you don't feel like you should be there watching. But this is why I really want to talk about it now with you two guys who I think are so smart because yeah, we're in one of those moments where everybody's like hand-wringing. Think of the children, the children, the Gen Zers, they don't want to see sex on screen. Maybe we should just not have sex at all. And I want to figure out if the sex scene can be saved. Because honestly, Paul, you go through those years of history, the 80s, the 90s, those are my years. I don't feel like I ever got to live through those moments where there could be a sexy film on screen and I wouldn't have to feel a little uncomfortable or weird myself. And I I feel like I've been robbed of that, you know, robbed of the chance to learn how to enjoy a sex scene. But if if a sex scene advances the plot, it's t- doing something besides sex, right? Right. And if it's advancing a plot, it's almost, advan- you know, plots in big movies aren't. Everybody's getting along and everything's wonderful and we're moving toward a more, you know, harmonious whatever for all of these people a sex scene in a plot usually advances something not great right like the the sex scenes in basic instinct aren't too healthy you know or fatal attraction which you know i I listened to the show you guys talked about these films they're not like healthy individuals connecting who are both the better for the experience after these are people being compromised by sex no it's true but wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great if we could figure that out? Wouldn't it be great if we could like hack it together as a brain trust? Because what a sex scene could also do is it's when a human is at their most real. Think about if we could figure out how to frame them, not even just as plot movers, but as like character exposers, as like who is the true you when you're like letting your guard down completely? Or are you not even letting your guard down? And what do we learn about you that way? Well, maybe the issue we all have with sex scenes is when, you know, we all know actors are acting, but sex scenes are when the acting is fakest. Right. You know, an an actor who's performing a scene where they're jumping, you know, it's Tom Cruise jumping out of an airplane. He's really jumping out of an airplane. He's not faking that. He does his own stunts. But when Tom Cruise makes out with whoever's been propped up in front of him to make out with in his millionth movie, doesn't seem as real as when he jumped out of the airplane. Maybe that's what's throwing us. It's not just Tom Cruise. It's everybody at that moment. Well, I was going to even go to this other part of it, which is like, is it more of a personal moment and then sharing it. Obviously there are, you know, porn theaters or there were, right? And you know, I'm sure there's a, a handful that still exists. But, you know, I guess when you read erotica or when you like there are there are certain things where I think are a little bit more personal. I don't for the most part, I think that people are probably watching porn either with uh, their partner or by themselves. So, you know, and then when you're in this theater, I remember like my parents brought me to multiple movies with sex in them because they were therapists and they're, Ooh, this is a movie about like Richard Gere is a therapist. We should go see it. And then there's like him and Kim Basinger just fucking throughout the majority of the movie. We went to go see color of night and, you know, and sitting next to your parents while a, a major sex scene is going on with Bruce Willis and this girl who looks 15 in that film. 
was a uh, jarring moment for me, right? And it's always like, I remember risky business, like, oh, cover your eye. Like, there's this panic. I, I feel like I grew up in this thing of like, oh, you shouldn't be watching this, but we're watching this. I mean, this is actually my theory about why the younger generation is even more uncomfortable with sex scenes than us is because... The trauma I still feel in my body when I remember my parents watching Dragnet in the living room and me walking in right when they go to a strip club. Oh, yeah. That was awful, you know, in my generation. But it's been my understanding that parents now watch even more media with their kids than they did when I was young. So you're always watching movies with your parents. Your parents seem to be even more aware a lot of the time. And that means just more exposure to awful moments that, like, scar you for life and make you just associate sex scene bad when it's really just provocative, uncomfortable things that I want the cinema to do. Look, I'm just going to come out flat and say, I want more sex scenes. I want to figure this out. (laughs) Some of my favorite moments in movies are like the moment in Titanic where Kate Winslet puts her hand on the foggy old car. What's an old car name? Like an Edsel, a Model T. But I mean, that there is a A sexy But that's like a very chaste (laughs) sex scene. Like, I mean. She's also got her boobies out later. Yeah, but for drawing, Amy. (laughs) Like one of your French girls. But look, I, I will say too, like I'm not a, a prude in this. I love Fatal Attraction. Like I thought the sex scene in that movie was awesome. It's like very passionate. Maybe what I find an issue is when it's too sincere. Maybe that's what I'm getting into. Like when it's too <laughs> like intimate. I, I, I think that that maybe gives me the creeping out moments that I'm going back to. I, I'm thinking about it now too, because I'm like, I'm not against it. T- to me, there's something where... I don't know, like, I feel like, oh, I like that, but I, the intimacy or something, I don't know. And I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it too, but I mean, I know when it's bad. I know when I'm uncomfortable with it. And Dan, I know that you have some favorite bad sex scenes as well. I, I do. The first really bad sex scene that I was personally very traumatized by was when I was a teenager and I saw Cruising with oh, wow. Al Pacino. <laughs> Um, And to be a closeted gay teenager sitting in an art house movie theater on the north side of Chicago and watching Cruising was not easy. And I rewatched Cruising recently because I'm going to be interviewed for a documentary film that's being made about Cruising. And man, I I have critiques. I have now just not 15-year-old Dan freaking out that this is what's going to be expected of me after I come out as gay. I'm going to be thrown into a basement in the meatpacking district in lower Manhattan and fist fucked. (laughs) That's what I had to look forward to and possibly being murdered or becoming a murderer. Now I watch it with what I know now about sex. And for the gritty realism of that movie, it gets something really wrong about bondage right out of the gate. Yeah. (laughs) That I just thought was so funny. You know, that movie, it's a mainstream Hollywood movie. William Friedkin, who made The Exorcist, it was supposed to be his big comeback film. Al Pacino wanted to be in it so badly that he bumped Richard Gere, who was originally cast as the New York City cop who gets sent undercover into the gay leather underworld because somebody's murdering gay men that they're picking up in the leather bar in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. And, you know, in the film, Al Pacino looks like the victim. So they send him off and he's all like wide-eyed and knows nothing about being gay or the gay scene. And he becomes an out gay kind of leather guy to attract the attention of the serial killer. And it was originally supposed to be Richard Gere. It would have been a very different, I think, perhaps better movie with Richard Gere because Al Pacino's too old and I'm sorry, then not hot enough to be the bait 
in this trap. <laughs> but he goes and learns about what handkerchiefs to he wear. He learns about what handkerchiefs uh. to wear. <laughs> he learns that Crisco ain't just for pie crusts anymore. You know, this is an interesting film because, you know, it's 1980. And I feel like where sex and cinema comes up a lot is we're going to introduce you to something that you don't know. Middle America, get ready, right? Because this is adapted from a book. Cruising is adapted from a book. But one of the big changes that they made was they made the killer into the world of, you know, like a sadomasochism, right? And gay leather bars like that. Like they added that. It's based on a true story, but they're like, let's let's switch this up a little bit. Oh my God, I did not know that. I didn't know that yeah. that wasn't a part of the book originally. Yeah, so it's like, and I feel like this is kind of, you know, going to what we were talking about before, like the body of evidence movie I saw with Madonna and Willem Dafoe. Like, it's like, we're going to show you this thing you don't know. And it goes on, but it is like, who's telling us this story? Like, like, is it through hearsay and rumors? Like, obviously that, like what you said, your fear of being like thrown into like the basement here and being fist fucked. Like, are we getting this information from the right source or is this like a playground school of like, oh yeah, and I hear that in the gay leather bars, this goes on. Oh, we'll put that in the movie. Like, is there, you know, this element to it where it's like, we're learning the wrong things because the wrong people are like, basically have the megaphones. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing about cruising. You know, it was protested at the time. There were street protests during the filming of it. Um, you know, gay activists found out what the movie was about and made noise, banged drums, blew whistles. Uh, I read today, because I was reading up on it, that all of the dialogue had to be dubbed because they couldn't do any recording during the filming outside because of the protests, because of the screaming and yelling. Um, wow. That said... The the locations where it was filmed, the extras, all the men dancing, all the men in these leather bars are actual leather guys from the leather scene in New York City in 1978, 79, many of whom then, you know, five years later were sick or dying um, with HIV AIDS, not dying because they were being picked off one by one by serial killers, which the movie suggests that if you exist on the leather scene long enough, you will become one. Um, <laughs> and it's really this it's this fascinating document of a of a time that the AIDS epidemic wiped away. And it's really interesting that the people whose subculture, like leather guys, fetishists, was somehow being portrayed as dangerous and sinful, they were willing to participate in the filming of the movie. They didn't object to how that scene was being portrayed. It was activists or, you know, average gay, lesbian people who weren't a part of that scene. And it's just, this, it, it exposes this really interesting tension in the gay community, in these kind of differing gay subcultures at the time. This hyper-consciousness about how we're being portrayed in mainstream film, and this desire to be seen and represented uh, in all of our sort of complicated, sexy sex, dirty sex glory in film. Uh, you know, I was watching White Lotus along with everybody else. And one of the commentaries about White Lotus was here are the bad gays, here are the evil gays. And you don't see evil gays often in film or television anymore because, you know, you don't want the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation to get after you. you gay people are an oppressed, marginalized community. You have to, like, make us either, you know, the gay best friend or sympathetic or a victim. And here are bad gays. And cruising was bad gays, but at a time when all gays in film were bad, right? Right. Or or murder victims. And it was just trafficking in those tropes. And the sex scenes in it are 
there are some really graphic ones that are, you know, I've been to Berlin. I've been to big fetish leather events and parties where people were getting fist fucked. That's kind of what it looked like. It's not inaccurate. I'm, I was surprised it was in a mainstream Hollywood film starring the literally the biggest star, movie star, male movie star at that time. And to like see it at 15. <laughs> I mean, the scene that you picked out to really talk about in depth happens fairly early in the movie, happens before we even see Pacino in the movie. It's the first murder. The first murder. Yeah. Do you want to walk us through it and sort of? Well, this guy, the murderer, um, picks up uh, a, a man in, in a leather bar and then goes, goes back with him to his sort of flea bag hotel room. And one of the things that Cruising is also portraying is a time when to be out and gay was to marginalize yourself economically, socially in ways that now isn't necessarily the case. Um, and so, you know, it's a disgusting flea bag hotel where this guy is staying and he pulls a knife on the guy, the killer does. And asks him if if he's afraid and the guy is. And then they just cut to the guy that the knife was pulled on. The victim is hogtied with these very kind of flimsy leather straps that he had in his great big bag of sex toys that he wanted to use with the person that he wanted to pick up and have sex with but not be murdered by. And they just kind of skip past, how do you tie somebody up like that? And, you know, one of the things, if if you know anybody who's into kink or bondage or you know anything about it, you can't really, unless somebody's holding a gun on somebody and there's another person in the room, you can't tie somebody up without their cooperation, without them letting you tie them up. And that, what I just think is so interesting about that scene is it could have been so much worse. You know, the brutality of that murder, the first murder that you see, you know, the guy is terrified and then stabbed by the murderer, but he was terrified from the moment the knife was pulled. And in a way, you know, you can't, to let somebody tie you up is to say that I trust you not to really hurt me. And the scene could have been so much, I guess, more horrifying for people who are actually kinky or knew something about kink because to have let somebody tie you up because you feel like they're not going to hurt you and then they do is to be stabbed twice, is to be murdered twice in a way, is to have, you know, first your trust in them you know, you know, to have that taken from you and then your life taken from you to, to have your nose rubbed in the mistake you made by guessing wrong uh, about who you would let tie you up in that moment. And I think there could have been, you know, watching it now as an adult, it could have been, you know, for as horrible as that scene is and as horrible and brutal as that scene is, it could have been, they could have twisted the knife. Ironically, it could have been a little worse in that when the guy pulled the knife, the guy that he pulled the knife on could have been aroused by that and seen it as a kind of power play and consented to being tied up, but not, of course, to being murdered. And then realized as he's being murdered the mistake he made in putting his trust in this guy. Yeah. That's fascinating. Because I was thinking, like, I wanted to ask you, could this scene be saved? And there you come, just with, like, such a great way of rewriting it that I think would make this scene yeah, it would double down on that horror. You're right, that double stabbing of vulnerability to be like, here's my trust. There is something worse when you put your heart out there. Yeah, like he makes himself vulnerable and then is violated in the ultimate 
and worst way that a person in a situation like that can be violated. You know, whenever you go home with somebody to have sex with them for the first time, you're taking an enormous risk, even if you're not going to do anything kinky, even if no one's going to get tied up. Right. You, you know, especially women, because intimate partner violence, sexual violence is so often directed at women, trans people. We're all taking this enormous risk the first time we have sex with somebody. It's part of what makes sex so effortlessly exciting with a new partner. And then people who've been with somebody for 10 years wonder why it's not so exciting anymore. And, and you know, they wonder where the spark went. Well, the spark spark was built in at first. And if you want that spark to exist 10 years later, you've got to kind of work it in. You know, you're the adventure that they're on that first time. They're the adventure you're on that first time. If you want to feel that sense of adventurousness after 10 years, you've got to intentionally create an adventure together and go on it together. So it's not just, you know, people who are into kink who are taking these risks when they go home with somebody for the first time. We all are. And it's always risky. It's always dangerous. We're always making ourselves vulnerable. That's why trust is so important when it comes to BDSM, when it comes to bondage. Yeah, that scene could have been... It's funny how the the movie inhabits the kink scene and the leather world, leather community. But in that moment, what it says when they just jump from the knife being pulled to the guy being tied up is they don't understand how kink or out bondage or any of it actually works. And that often seems like a lot of the foray into this world is done by people who don't necessarily understand the world, right? Like I, I you know, I know we're going to talk about this in a second as well, but like Brokeback Mountain, it's like you have a lot of people here who are not, who are not gay, who are not, who don't, who, like where is this perspective coming from, at least to be bringing you into something? I do believe that there, that's why I kind of feel like this idea of, um, it's more schoolyardy, like it's like, oh, I heard this, or wouldn't this be interesting? And and it's like this warped perception of something else. It, it's locker room talk. There's something weird about it where it doesn't feel like a good representation. And when there's so few representations of alternative ways of being uh, or living or having sex, it's like you can kind of start to paint yourself into a corner and make it very taboo and also kind of help people rally against something. It's like, you see, and cruising. That's what they do. You got like, we are already saying it. Like, I feel like it, it helps like in a way you're like, oh, we want to bring this to the big screen. But then at the same time, you're also helping put it away and never come back. But you have a special responsibility. And, you know, I don't believe that you have to be of a certain community or a certain type of person to create a certain type of person or write about somebody who's in a community that you're not a part of. I think people have moral imaginations um, can project themselves into someone else's lived experience and really create, you know, the the woman who wrote Brokeback Mountain, who created Jack and Enos, is a straight woman. Right. A lot of great gay fiction from Mary Renault, who wrote The Persian Boy, which is just this amazing novel about Alexander the Great and Bagyos, his Persian slave boy, that he ends up in this very kind of loving, complicated relationship with. Mary Renault wrote that, and it is a love story for the ages. You know, it's almost 100 years old. People are still reading it and passing it around. That said, when you're going to inhabit somebody else's world, lived experience, you want to make sure you don't make obvious mistakes that anybody, you know, if you talk to anybody with that lived experience, they would tell you that you can't tie somebody up without their cooperation. Or if you're doing a thing about the kink scene and BDSM, or when it comes to Brokeback Mountain, you can't eat four cans of beans and then have anal sex without lubricant. <laughs> you know, my husband and I watched, we tried, but they were cowboys, you know, they, <laughs> they were cowboys, I guess they're, they're rough and tough, but like Brokeback Mountain really works for a lot of people. When it comes to gay stories, I, I liked Ang Lee's The Wedding Party better 
um, as a as a gay narrative. Uh-huh. I never got all the way through Brokeback Mountain. My husband and I kind of like really? laughed through Brokeback Mountain and turned it off halfway through. It didn't work for us. The tor- I mean, you know, partly it was the tortured closet cases thing, but partly it betrayed our trust as gay men when they got the mechanics of gay sex so laughably, literally laughably wrong that we were thrown out of it. That's something that I probably won't see or recognize, but at the same time, that's what you're kind of saying. It's like, it is possible, but a lot of the times the things that get the most popular are seemingly not with the, with somebody so confident. Like, I got this. I get this. And I think it is in a weird way, your imagination will do things in literature and you, you can see certain things and like, but when you have to put it on film, it's like, you know, I just think of that, that scene and I, or those, that movie and I do think of like three straight men attacking this. And it's like, and that's where there is this benefit of intimacy coordinators and things like that too. But I, you know, it's like, you but, would want to make sure. Yeah. How much anal foreplay would we have wanted to see? Right. Right. I, again, yeah. I think of what Amy just said about that scene in Titanic, where just the hand slaps onto the, you know, the, the window of the antique car with all the condensation because they're fucking their brains out in that car. And you can infer from what you've just seen with the hand about, you know, if there's that much condensation, there's been a lot of rolling around and fucking and foreplay. So I don't know if I wanted to see Heath Ledger eat Jake Gyllenhaal's ass for the requisite 20 minutes that you would probably have to eat somebody's ass before you fuck them for the first time. <laughs> I don't know if that would have made it into the movie or made it pornography, but maybe just some like time shrinking device or skipping past or suggesting or gesturing at, as opposed to in real time, we make out, I roll you over, I spit on my dick, I shove my dick in you. I hope I don't hit the beans. I mean, A... <laughs> You just gave me an idea for a bumper sticker I would like to put on an old Etzel. Like, if this Etzel is full of condensation, you know that inside there's some fornication. I, I feel like... Wow, that they, was... You came up with that quick. I thought you were just going to say you wanted a car that said, uh, don't hit the beans. You're going to need a long bumper for that bumper sticker, <laughs> yeah. though. If this Etzel's full of condensation, you know there's fornication. People are just pulling up real close, like squinting, like, what does it say? You know, I rewatched um, this scene, too, because you're talking about the very first scene where they where, where Jack and Ennis hook up in the movie. And the thing that also really stood out to me as well is you don't see any pleasure in it, really. You see, like release but you don't see pleasure you see aggression though and one of the things that can that gay sex can sort of effortlessly um own is a kind of celebration of male aggression of, of masculine kind of sexual power and that kind of dynamism that when it, I think it comes to heterosexual sex, women want some of that, but not to stare into the abyss of that because it's a little too much, a little too terrifying, um, especially right out of the gate where a lot of gay male sex is kind of rough and is a little dehumanizing um, in its expression, in its, in its, um, in the, in the play of it, you know, in the, the icons and stereotypes being invoked. Well, okay, then I want to ask you the question then for real. Can this scene be saved? Yeah, with 20 minutes of Heath Ledger eating Jake Gyllenhaal's ass. Uh, (laughs) I think it could be saved with some sort of minor time jump or some sort of Mm -hmm. suggestion that you can't just go from zero to 60 like that. And then we can either 
imagine what might have happened or just be content to know that they didn't go from zero to 60. Like you, you watch that scene if you're a gay man and you're like anal fissure, you're like a tear is going to happen. That's going to put your butt out of commission for two years. As you're talking about it, I'm thinking about it. It's a very heteronormative way of having sex, right? Or the way that we see it in film. Like they start kissing and all of a sudden they're fucking, right? And that's what this movie is. They start kissing and then they're fucking. And it's like, and there's, there is no difference to the anatomy. It's like, that's what we understand. And I do think that like, to your point, any different way of doing it, maybe it's people are a little bit more uncomfortable. It's like, oh, they're gay and they have sex just like us or that they're gay, you know, their gay sex in this film. It feels the same way that you would have a, you know, a man and a woman have sex. You know, it's like there's a, the comfort level. It's interesting that the heteronormativity, the, the heteronormative sex you describe is not great for women. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. That like some kissing and then throw the dick in me, like, you know, the vagina self-lubricating organ designed for penetration or evolved uh, for penetration, six and one half dozen the other, for a woman to be aroused to the point where penetration is pleasurable, as I'm sure you know as a straight guy, you can't just like throw the dick in. There's got to be like foreplay in a bill. But that is how it is shown in movies too. And so that's why- And it's shown in movies as good sex and good for the woman too, right? And it's a lie. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I want to fix the sex scene because- I mean, yeah, everybody's like hand-wringing about kids learning everything about sex from from porn and then like jumping into pornification really, really young where they're like aggro and not thinking about pleasure, but it's happening even in the softer stuff. And isn't the condensation in that Titanic scene the fix because of what it implies that this has been going on for a while, that there was a build here. And we know when Rose's hand hits the glass that the implication there is like, this is a moment of penetration or climax but there's so much condensation that they didn't start with penetration and climax, right? Right. So it's like it implies like this this arc to the sex, this like progression to the sex. And there's no implication of a progression to the sex in Brokeback Mountain. There's just dicks thrown in butts. So are we going to go on a limb and say that James Cameron might be better in bed than Angley? <laughs> uh, I'll say it. Why not? What have I got to lose? Then I guess we have to go the opposite way, which is uh, maybe Bob Guccione got it right uh, with Caligula, which was, uh, you know, another film that we're going to talk about here, uh, which at least got the lube. He got a lot of the lube. (laughs) Yes, he did. Yeah, Bob Guccione decides uh, to come into uh, mainstream cinema by taking his knowledge of the adult film, the, the, the porn world and bringing it into, uh, you know, Helen Mirren and Malcolm McDowell, like art and fuck romp you know i mean that that movie is you know that obviously gets dinged a lot but i mean what do we think about that like that film caligula is just a you know another fascinating document of the 1970s bob guccione if people don't know he was the publisher of penthouse magazine rival to playboy and he decided to make a big movie gore vidal wrote the script um i can't remember the name of the director but big stars malcolm mcdowell Big star now, Helen Mirren, enormous star now. But big stars at the time, Peter O'Toole, John Gielgud, were all in this movie. It's about Caligula, the third emperor of Rome, after uh, 
Tiberius. By the way, just so you know, uh, Bob Guccione it does have a credit as a director. There's three directors on this movie. Tinto Brass, Giancarlo Lu, and Bob Guccione. So this is one of those rare uh, three director pictures. They, they since for the last like I don't know half a dozen years they've been saying they're going to bring out a new cut of it. Yes, that hews more closely to Gore Vidal's script. Gore Vidal had his name taken off the film because what happened is after production, Bob Guccione filmed a bunch of just random sex scenes that then they just jammed into the film, and it's really pornography. It's a porn movie with a bunch of major stars in it about. Caligula, who was crazy emperor of Rome and not married his sister, murdered a lot of people, and was out of control. And the movie's supposed to be about how power corrupts, right? And Malcolm McDowell is kind is amazing as Caligula, but it's like three and a half hours long, and there are these weird tangents where somebody looks through a hole in the wall, and then there's just like hardcore baloney sex going on that has nothing to do with the plot. <laughs> And maybe this is that movie where we see like there are sex scenes that were like sex advance at the plot. They're part of the telling the story. They're the uncanny valley. These are actors faking sex. And then there's porn right in this movie and that they sit side by side so awkwardly. It's a hard it's a hard needle thread. I will say that according to the website Caligula MMXX dot com, it is coming out this year. This this Gore Vidal version. It is uh, they finally have it ready to go. I can't wait to see it. How does it say how long it's going to be? Three hours again. Three hours. Three hours. So it says, uh, conf- uh, conforming to the original Gore Vidal script in honor of the 40th anniversary, this new edit of the film is three hours long. I can't wait to to see. I want to quote Roger Ebert here from his review of the original cut. Sickening, utterly worthless, shameful trash. This movie is the worst piece of shit I have ever seen. <laughs> I'm going to say I want to accept this new cut of Caligula as a personal goal. You know, like I did not get to see any of the erotic films that were released in the theaters, like in the deep throat era. And then of course I was born like post boogie nights in the world of like video stuff. I've never seen anything with that much sex on a screen with other people. And I was thinking, even as we started this conversation, thinking about watching Dragnet with my parents, that I feel like it would be a good emotional test for me, like a good exercise in comfortability to watch this movie with a with a room full of people. So I will see this movie big in the most crowded room I can find on opening weekend. I run a porn film festival called Hump Film Fest, um, which screens, you know, 20, 30 uh, short porn films. Um, it's often like comedy with like graphic sex in them. Right. It's great. Humpfilmfest.com. And I always say that one of the things Hump does is it brings back that experience, you know, watching porn the way your grandparents used to watch porn, sitting next to strangers in the dark. <laughs> and it is different. And it puts you in a kind of different place. It's weird. You feel at once as if you're watching porn, but you also, because there are people around you, feel like porn is watching you. Right. It's not private. You're not alone with your computer. You're in public and there are other people around. It, that feels like a trust exercise. Yeah, a little bit like letting somebody tie you up. <laughs> but now, do you think that, like, because you're saying that there's like there's comedy mixed into it, like that kind of not deflates the moment, but allows you to enjoy it a little bit more. There's a little bit more there, so you're like, oh, okay, I can, I can be like Fritz the Cat was popular a lot, and that was like, I mean, that was you know, porn and cartoons kind of mixed, you know, and that seemed more popular because it's like, oh, I, I can, I can at least meet it somewhere. Watching a sex scene in a movie that's serious, there's no release watching right. a sex scene that's funny or watching a porn short that's actually kind of a comedy short with graphic sex, you get to laugh. 
and the tension is released. Whereas it, a sex scene in a movie or porn, you know, if you're watching something like Caligula in a theater, like I did um, a million years ago, that tension builds, but there's never any release. Well, then let's talk about the scene that we're thinking about in Caligula, because I can't imagine watching that with a crowd and the tension that it would feel running through my body. Caligula you know, he's out of the control emperor of Rome and this soldier who's a part of the Praetorian guard guards, the emperor is getting married and Caligula goes to the wedding party. And I, I can never remember how to say this expression in France, Jurat the emperor or something where the, the senior gets the right of, to have sex with the bride on the wedding night, if they so choose. And so Caligula basically rapes the bride and then anally rapes with a fist, a signet ring on his fist, the groom fist fucks him. So a lot of fist fucking in the movies in the 70s and early 80s with Caligula and cruising. What's ironic is the fist fucking and cruising is shown in such a way that it's very graphic, but seen from an angle where you don't actually see anything, but it's portrayed very realistically um, and and achievably, as opposed to the anal sex in Brokeback Mountain, which is portrayed very unrealistically and not achievable without injury. And the fist-fucking in Caligula is about the violence and symbolizes how out of control Caligula, as played by Malcolm McDowell, is. Yeah, it is brutal. Yeah. And the movie doesn't shy away from how brutal it is. Like, at the end, both the bride and the groom are in the fetal position, just broken. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's hard to watch, and it was hard for me to watch. Do you guys remember, you guys are too young for art houses. There used to be, you know, the Varsity Theater in Chicago, and they'd, they'd have a million movies. They'd show a different movie every night. I don't know how they did it, because it was when they were still shipping film reels all over the country. And once a month, they would come out with a schedule that had, a, you know, printed, and you would hang it on your fridge, and you would go to the theater one particular night to see all about Eve or bringing up baby or Caligula at midnight. Kind of like what the new Bev does out here. Like, Which is magical. It became a midnight movie. It became a, a cult movie. Because it was unwatchable, um, people decided that watching it was kind of an extreme sport. And to watch that scene in particular, where Caligula rapes um, the bride of his, the member of his guard, and then rapes the member of the guard too, yeah, that was hard to watch. It's so hard. And yet I found myself also really going through this emotional, conflicted roller coaster watching it because his Caligula's excuse for raping both of them is, you know, he says one law for women, one law for men. That's not fair. So it's almost like to be progressive, he should ruin both of their days. And part of me was like, oh, I guess that's a horrible point, but I hear what you're saying. And I, was, and I hate how I had that little twinge of like fairness, maybe just because I'm so tired of seeing women being like horribly abused on screen. But then I was also thinking watching it like in the world of Caligula, it felt moderately healthy at the wedding that they're like a culture that really embraces sex. The bride and the groom are sitting by a giant statue of a penis and a giant statue of a, of a vagina. And it felt so opposite to being alive this year in 2023 that I was like, oh, good for you guys. Oh, no, Caligula just had to go and ruin it all. <laughs> By shoving his entire arm into a vat of butter Ugh. and then shoving his entire arm into that poor kid. Ugh. I wonder how many takes they had to do of that and how many times Makamoto had to wash it off his arm and then start again from scratch. 
Uh, oh. Because we were going to talk about it, I like was just doing a little bit of reading about the film today. And I did not know that originally Malcolm McDowell as Caligula was supposed to f- fuck the guard, penetrate him with his penis. And Malcolm McDowell refused to, to play that and suggested instead the scene that we saw ultimately that was Malcolm McDowell's suggestion because, because having sex with this guy, I guess was too gay. Whereas fist fucking this guy was violent enough to absolve it from any sort of homosexual overtones somehow. Well, then again, I ask you, can this scene be saved? Can the movie be saved? (laughs) Yeah. Like the movie is one giant out of control sex scene for most of it. And I'm gonna. I'm dying to see this new cut that Hughes closer to Gore Vidal's script. If anybody's out there has read Gore Vidal's Julian, which is a novel he wrote about um, the last pagan emperor of Rome, it, and it's beautiful. It's it's wonderful, um, and it just it, it just takes you there. And it's it's a gorgeous novel. And so, uh, yeah, you read Julian thinking what Caligula, if they had shot Gore Vidal's script, might have been, and you want to see that film. So I'm I'm dying to see this film. So can this can this scene be saved? Can this movie be saved? I think we might find out soon. I mean, that's going to be really interesting to see. And because you don't have to worry about Bob Gucci, and I think that's the reason why he's credited as a director because he's going in there and just shooting extra porn scenes. You know, it's like, did he ultimately get nervous to be like, oh, this movie can't sustain? Like, I needed to have more sex. You know, like I'm curious, like what the thought process was there because it's like he's trying to bridge the gap, but then his Mindset is like, well, we need more, though. We need we need more of this. Guccione was always the producer of the film. I think a lot of these actors in Gore Vidal thought Guccione was going to try to pivot from being a low-rent, low-brow pornographer to being a, a filmmaker and producer, and it was some sort of bid for credibility. Or um, And then instead, Guccione guccione did yeah. and kind of <laughs> tricked everyone involved into, you know, dragged them all down. Gilgood, Peter O'Toole, Malcolm McDowell, dragged them all down to his dirty porn level rather than using all of them to lever himself up out of the muck that that he existed in. Because Penthouse was the much more sort of filthy rag compared to Playboy. Gosh, now I wonder if there's clauses in actors' contracts that say you cannot cut my scene out and put it in a porn film. You cannot add porn films and put me in a porn film without me knowing I'm in a porn film. <laughs> yeah, you can't do new, new shoots and jam porn scenes in. You can't be like, I thought I was in a sensitive drama about a woman, you know, going on a cruise ship. The Caligula clause is why we didn't get 20 minutes of Heath Ledger performing <laughs> anal play on Jake Gyllenhaal. I just want to go back to one thing as we wrap up here and just talk about it because I think you stumbled upon something that does actually work with sex in films, comedy. And there is an abundance of sex comedies. And, you know, you have something that maybe is a little bit more graphic, you know, in the way of like something about Mary, like where you're seeing balls or cum and stuff like that. And then you have something that's a little bit more chaste, like super bad, right? But we do exist in this world of, and those are more titillating they're more relatable but they're they're, it's comedy and sex kind of mixed and you know and they're different because i'd also again argue that you know forgetting sarah marshall has you know element you know you're seeing a dick in that but it's not like a it's a sex comedy in a way but it's relationships and sex that kind of mix that seems like the the mix that works and continues to work time and time again. And and to the what level it it always kind of goes up and down, whether it's risky business or blockers, uh, you know, 
you know, there's there's levels to. Maybe that's the issue because when we talk about sex scenes in movies that don't work or make us uncomfortable, we almost always go to the dramas or the serious ones. Yeah, where the sex is taking itself seriously, or the filmmaker, the performers are taking it seriously. Sex makes us fools of us all. We all look ridiculous in pursuit of it, look ridiculous a little bit. We know when we're doing it and feel a little ridiculous immediately after. And giving us the titillation, giving us, you know, the hot people, and then also letting us all off the hook by showing what we all have in common, which is that feeling of powerlessness and ridiculousness yeah. in the face of how enormous sex is. Because, you know, sex is bigger and stronger and more powerful than all of us. And so, of course, to take something's power away, you want to laugh at it. And so we laugh at sex because sex is so powerful. And, you know, this goes into something I didn't even realize this when we started this conversation. But one of the movies I just kind of got turned on to was Magic Mike. I hadn't seen it until recently. And that's a really interesting movie, too, because that's a movie that really walks this line of they they cut away for the sex scenes. And obviously you're watching all these like you know these uh these strip scenes or these dance sequences and like that's another movie where it's like they're giving you the sex and the dance like that i didn't like magic mike's last dance but that one the that opening, opening dance sequence number. it's like fucking unbelievable it's like better than any sex scene but that makes me wonder then i'm gonna kick this to both of you what is the sex scene that doesn't exist yet that you would like to see you can feel free to cast it Set it, put it in a cruise ship, put it wherever you want. I got mine. I have mine right here. Really? I, I have it because I was talking about this the other day. In Fast 10, I want Jason Momoa to kiss Vin Diesel on the mouth and make out with him. I think that would be like a hardcore make out with Momoa. Those movies are so kind of like, I'm in your face. Oh, yeah, you're the best. You're like, I would like to see maybe the rock and Vin Diesel go at it, but not, you know, again, not like, not mind the beans. And part of what you want to see is that that aggression that they show to each other taken to its almost, you know, it's very, those movies are very homoerotic. There's a lot of yeah. like chests thrusting out, man challenge, challenging man. I think this the sick scene I want to see. I'm so bad with names. The current Spider-Man and his current girlfriend. Oh, yes. The star yeah. Before oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Zendaya and Tom Holland. Yeah. I would love to see, in part because, you know, one of the things that they get sort of dogged about or talked about is that she's so much taller than he is. And that violates one of these norms or tropes of the way heterosexual sex and straight people are portrayed in films is the man is always taller and bigger. I'd love for them to find something to work on together, preferably a sex comedy where we see them fall in love, have sex, but for it to be funny. I think we always need that release. I think we need to be able to laugh. Well, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I was even thinking about this. I, I'm a big fan of Picard season three and I was a big Star Trek fan and Next Generation stuff. And there's a great moment in the the last episode just where, uh, no spoilers, but uh, where Riker is married to Troy and they kiss. And I was also like, wow, you don't actually see old, older people. Like it was like a real kiss. It was like, it was like, oh, a passionate kiss. I'm like, oh, like that's also missing from things too. Like, you know, older people being able to enjoy that or, or, or have something. And I think that's interesting. Like they did it on Grace and Frankie and I loved it. Not missing from Hump, Hump Film Fest. Always has. Okay, you see? All right, well, All right. so come. there it is. I got to get the hump film. All ages, sizes. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I think it's really good. We're in our 17th year. Well, this is so great to having this conversation with you about 
the state of sex scenes and and where they can go and uh, we got to get to hump fest when, when do you know when it's going to be this year um it's touring north america now humpfilmfest.com the okay. 2023 edition um and i'm sorry that i'm so old that all the films i wanted to talk about are 15 20 30 40 year old films but those are the ones that stick in your i love it stick in your head all your life are the ones you saw when you were 15, 16, 17 years old. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. This is such a fun conversation. Thank you for joining us. That was really fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Bye, buddy. Bye. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. Paul, that was just so magical having Dan on the show. And he's right. I just pulled up the Hump Film Fest tour. And as you're listening to this, this weekend is going to be in Missoula, Montana. It's going to Cleveland, Nashville, everywhere you live. It's actually coming pretty close to you. We're talking uh, Montreal to Kansas City to Juneau, Alaska to Portland. Here in L.A., it's going to get as close to Sacramento and Palm Springs and Oakland. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. Let's go. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. I absolutely love it. All right, Amy, such a blast. Uh, Hopefully the first, not our last. Unspooled after dark. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen tests on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com.